Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. And by way of introduction, I'll just remind us that the, the book of Ephesians is kind of divided roughly in half, with the first three chapters really being focused on what God has done, what God has done on our behalf. And the Apostle Paul's typical way of approaching the imperatives of life, that is what we are to do, he first talks about the indicatives, who we are, what Christ has done. We can't even begin to approach what we ought to do if we don't know about Christ and him crucified for our sin, if we don't understand that our assurance rests upon the finished work of Christ on the cross. So chapters 4 through 6 is really God's call to us to respond to that new life that we have in Jesus Christ and how we think and how we act and how we live. If you remember Nick's last sermon on chapter 4, the final verse of Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And with that transitional verse, we begin with Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with the first verse. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is, is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You know, if you hear me talk about social media, I mostly complain about it. Um, but I mostly complain about it because people use social media, and people are awful, right? Um, but there are some really positive things. And one of those things is uh, on Facebook, I often get these little pop-ups of the memories of the day, and there's photos of my family from throughout um, our lives together. 
And one that frequently, there's two pictures that frequently pop up. One is Xander, who's maybe five, and he's standing in front of a train, and he's wearing my hat, which is way too large for his head, and he's got a suitcase behind him because I was getting ready to travel to Chicago from, um, from St. Louis, and it was always stressful for Xander when I traveled, and so we had him all dressed up like me to kind of encourage him as I was getting ready to make that trip. There's another picture that comes up frequently, and it's Matthew and I sitting next to each other at Disney World, and we're, we're wearing matching Hawaiian shirts. And Amy reminded me this morning that actually all, all, me and the boys all had the same matching Hawaiian shirt that trip. It's really common for children to imitate their parents. We enjoy memories like that because it's, it's, it's normal and it's encouraging to see children imitate their parents. It reminds us of our relationship to them and their relationship to us. God calls us in this passage through the Apostle Paul to be imitators of God, imitators of God as beloved children, as beloved children. Now, what does it mean to be a, an imitator of God? Well, it's not in his, what he calls his incommunicable attributes. That's things like his self-existence, self-sufficiency, omnipresence, omniscience, majesty, and holiness. It's not in those things. Those belong to God alone. But it's in things like his wisdom, his faithfulness, his goodness, his love, his mercy, his compassion, his tenderness and forgiveness. We are called to imitate him in our lives, in our thoughts, in our actions, in who we are. But we do that as beloved children, as those who have been adopted through Christ as children of the Father. Paul has spent three chapters talking about who we are in Christ Jesus. And he begins in chapter 4 then by talking about who we are to be in our lives and our actions. And chapter 5 continues that with very strong language. But we remember that he's calling us to that as his beloved children. So if we're called to imitate God, what does that look like? How are we to imitate God according to this passage? Well, first, we are to imitate God by walking in love. And second, we are to imitate God by walking in love as children of the light. And third, we're to imitate God by walking in love, I'm sorry, by walking in love carefully in wisdom. So that's how we're going to look at this passage. We're going to look at it by walking in love, walking as children of the light, and walking carefully in wisdom. Well, how are we to walk in love? Well, if we look at the first seven verses of this passage... Well, actually, if we look at the whole passage, we're going to use this framework of walking because walking really describes life. Right? We're walking the path of life day to day. There was a beginning and there will be an end to our lives in, in this world. And this is to be the way of our life. And how are we to walk in love then? Well, Paul describes it in several ways. We are to walk in love as Christ did. We are to walk in love with thanksgiving. We are to walk in love with understanding, and we are to walk in love without being deceived. Well, first we're we're to walk in love as Christ. Verse 2 says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I love that 
phrase, fragrant offering. It echoes the phrase, pleasing aroma in the Old Testament. Just search on that sometime, and you'll see numerous references to fragrant offering. One, in Noah's sacrifice in Genesis 8, after the flood, after this judgment of God, after the peril of those in the ark, they come onto land, Noah offers a sacrifice, and it's a pleasing aroma to God. It brings joy to God's heart. We see it in the Levitical offerings of the Pentateuch, where God reminds them that all these offerings and sacrifices are pleasing aromas to him, faithfulness to him. In Ezekiel, there's a prophecy of Ezekiel where he is talking about the people of God being restored from the exile because of their sin, being restored to Israel, and there they will be made to offer pleasing aromas to God in sacrifice. He's going to change who they are. See, that pleasing aroma is a sacrifice of faithfulness. And here, the sacrifice of Christ for us, right? He, was given, he gave himself up for us. He loved us. He gave himself as a sacrifice for us. And that is pleasing to God, is a pleasing aroma. And our lives are to reflect that. Our lives are to be a pleasing aroma to God through sacrificial love. We are to imitate God by imitating our Savior. We are to look at his ultimate example in his redemption of us on the cross, and we are to work, to live in that way. We're also to do it with thanksgiving. And thanksgiving is contrasted with the way the world works. He first says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. When he talks about sexual immorality there, That word means all sexual sin, anything outside of marriage. All the things that are being touted by our culture now as good, those are all outside. Those are all sexual sin. Pornography, homosexuality, promiscuity, anything outside God's covenantal marriage of a man and a woman are considered sexual sin. That's what he's talking about there. It's the broadest term. None of that is to be named among you. And then he also talks about covetousness. And while I think that conservative Christians, biblical Christians, typically say, amen, they understand the dangers of sexual immorality, they're pretty open about that. Covetousness is one that goes more, is more insidious, more easily covered up, we justify it more, that we don't have our fair share. Covetous means simply this, desiring what has not been given to us by God. In fact, he'll call it idolatry later because he's, what he's saying is covetousness is really about us placing something else, some other desire we have before desiring God himself. These are hearts that are unsatisfied with what we're giving, actually resentful towards God. It could be wealth or position or influence. It could be relationships that we desire that we do not have. Whatever it is, we are not happy with our lot in life that God has given us. And we're sinfully unhappy. Desire is not bad, but a desire that leads us to resent our God and to feel mistreated by him and to displace him with some other object of desire is covetousness. See, we are to be a distinct community. He said these things should not even be named among you as is proper among saints. We are to be distinct, strange to the world. 
We are to look different, and we are to be different, and we are to desire far different things than the world says are good. He goes, it goes so far to say there should be no filthiness, this is verse 4, no foolish talk, no crude joking, none of that. We know what that is. We're not to speak as the world. We're not to joke as the world. We're not to find crude and sinful language appropriate for our lives. But he doesn't simply say, don't do these things. He says, rather do this. He says, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Don't waste your time with the nonsense and the wickedness of the world. Don't be like them, but have thanksgiving, gratefulness for what God has done. Flee from these other things and find joy and thanksgiving to God for what you have been given. I hear this all the time from people that are unbelievers. They'll talk about being thankful in a general sense, and I always think, who is the object of your thankfulness? I think it's just something that's in the vernacular, but it's left over from when Christianity more influenced Western culture than it does today. The thankfulness has to have an object. In other words, we have to be thankful to someone for something. As Christians, we are to live in thankfulness because we have everything that children have We have a beloved father. We are beloved children. He has not withheld anything from us. He gave his only son on the cross. He shed his only son's blood for our redemption. We have everything. That's why we're not to be covetous. There's nothing else for us to have. We have everything that we need. James Boyce writes, um, this quote is from James Boyce's commentary, and it was written originally in 1988. And just want to give you the context, so... This was written in 1988. He said, The Greeks, among whom the Ephesians lived, openly approved of such practices as prostitution and homosexuality. In fact, in Athens, a great temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love, was built with the prophets from the brothels, which were established in the city with this objective. To the Greeks, this was not the least bit strange, nor was it strange to combine what was regarded as a high moral standard in other areas with homosexuality. Catch that. It wasn't strange to the Greeks to have this high moral standard, but then they would combine that and put it on the same, in the same way, area with homosexuality. Paul says that what was perfectly acceptable in the surrounding society was not even to be hinted at among Christians. And I think James Boyce writes this in 1988 to say, hey, isn't this strange? This was the context of the Ephesians. In 2022, it's our context. That's what's happening in our culture homosexuality, and all kinds of other aberrant sexual behaviors. Everything that is abhorrent to God is be putting on the same standard as high moral standards. And then the implication is put that if we are faithful to God's word, we're somehow bigots, that we're the judgmental ones. It's a hard position to be in, but it is not to be named among us. We are not to acquiesce to the culture. Because we do nothing for the people around us. We do nothing for unbelievers. We're in no way loving to those who need Christ and Him crucify if we deny the truth of the gospel. He says we're also to walk in love with understanding. He says in verse 5, you may be sure of this. These are hard words. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance of the kingdom of God and Christ. No 
inheritance. Why does he say that? He wants to remind them that they are the beloved children of the Father. They are made new in Christ. They are not like they were before. And the pattern of their lives reflects who they are. It's a serious warning to his hearers, to these Ephesians, to be reminded of who they are and the serious dangers of sin. I have grown up my entire life with entertainment that has been undermining that. And I find myself, even to this day, sometimes being way too comfortable with the sin of our society simply because of what I've been exposed to throughout my life. You're probably in a similar position. John Calvin writes in his commentary in Ephesians about this. He says, if his, that's Paul's, readers were all at all captivated by the allurements of these vices which have been enumerated, the consequence would be that they would lend a hesitating or careless ear to his admonitions. He determines, therefore, he's talking about Paul, to alarm them by his weighty and dreadful threatening that such vices shut, against us, shut us against the kingdom of God. Some might think it harsh or inconsistent with the divine goodness that all who have incurred the guilt of fornication or covetousness are excluded from the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven. But the answer is easy. Paul does not say that those who have fallen into these sins and recovered from them are not pardoned, but pronounces sentence on the sins themselves. When men have repented and thus given evidence that they are reconciled to God, they are no longer the same persons that they formerly were. But let all fornicators or unclean or covetous persons, so long as they continue such, be assured that they have no friendship with God and are deprived of all hope of salvation. It is called the kingdom of Christ and of God because God hath given it to his Son so that we might obtain it through him. It's a serious warning that we may have been in these practices in our past life. They may have been the practice of our life, but in Christ, they should no longer be so. That our lives should be new and different because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And so he's warning them if they are continuing in these practices, in covetousness, in sexual immorality, that they should be looking at their hearts and seeing exactly who they are. He also says that we are to walk in love without being deceived. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. See, there's a contrast here. He's called us beloved children, those who are in Christ, those who are made new, those who are changed, those who are transformed, and he contrasts them with the world, the sons of disobedience. Now, the devil will try to divide the world in all kinds of different groups and oppose us to one another. He's always attempting to create division within the church and mislead us, but there's only two groups of people in the world. There are those who are beloved children in Christ, and there are the sons of disobedience. That's it. And the sons of disobedience approach God as judge alone, and we come before God as beloved children of the Father. So we've seen what it means to walk in love. We have to ask the question, how are we to walk as children of the light? How are we to walk as children of the light? Paul says we are not to participate in the wickedness of the world. We are to do what is good, right, and true. We are to seek to please the Lord, and we are to expose the darkness. 
This transitional verse 7 says, therefore do not be partners with them. He's talking about the sons of disobedience. He says, don't partner with them. It's a transition to being children of light. It doesn't mean we avoid unbelievers. We live in the world. We are not to be of the world. We're not to join in their sinful practices. We're seeing many quarters of the so-called biblical church today beginning to yield to the culture, to change their doctrine, to align with what the world says is good is right. We are no good to the unbelieving world if we do that. It's not an act of grace to abandon the word of God and faithfulness to God to unbelievers. We are to be light in the Lord Verse 8, it says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, of light. See, in the work of Christ, we are different. We have been justified. We are being sanctified. We are moving towards glorification. We are his adopted children. We are made new. We are to imitate God and not the fallen world. And unlike the sons of disobedience, we are the beloved children of God. The fruit of our spirits the fruit of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, and alive should lead to good and right and true. Verse 9. What do we do in a situation? We do what is good and right and true. What do we do when we're in a difficult place, when we're suffering, when we're being opposed or hurt or wounded? We're to do what is good and right and true. Our lives are to be marked by what is good and right and true. That is what the Holy Spirit is doing in us. What is good and right and true. Verse 10. We are to seek to please the Lord in every situation. He says, discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That is the object of the Christian life, is to seek to please the Lord. I don't know if it's true of daughters and mothers, but of fathers and sons, there is a desire of every son to please his father. Now, sometimes that'll lead to arguments and debate and all kinds of other things, but every son wants the affirmation of his father. I have a good father, and I understand it. Some of, some of us have not had that privilege. But we all, if we are in Christ, have a perfect father. It's our, it's our heart's desire. It should be our heart's desire, if we are in Christ, to please the Lord, to thank him for what he's done for us in Christ, to be his faithful children. We don't earn our salvation through our works, we thank the Lord for our salvation and our works. We don't purchase our salvation through our good works. We respond to our faithful Father with joy in our good works. We are freed from sin unto obedience. Paul goes on, not only are we to, to not participate in wickedness, we're to expose it. Verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful work of darkness, but instead expose them. What happens with light and darkness? I took a tour with my dad many, many years ago. I think it was of Mammoth Caverns, and we were taken down on this long tour into Mammoth Caverns for about four or five hours, and we walked through it. And it was meant for, to be an easy path. But we got to this one huge section, and the tour guide said, I'm going to show you absolute dark. And she said, I want you to cover up your watches, because it was the 80s, and we all had Casio watches lit up in the dark, and that was about as technical as we got. So we all covered our watches so the glowing wouldn't light up the dark, and she turned off the light, and I want to say I've never seen darkness like that, but I couldn't see anything. It was the darkest thing I'd ever experienced. And then she said, now I'm going to turn on the light and see what happens. And she turned on this tiny little flashlight, and our eyes were immediately attracted to that, and it just broke the darkness, this tiny little light. 
That is what we are to be. When we live as light, we expose the darkness in this world. If we live like, why do you think the world hates us? Why do you think we have moved in our culture from being called to, to live in toleration, that is, live and let live, to affirming the wickedness of the culture? Why do they hate it if we quietly try to live godly lives? Because the fact that we do, the fact that we believe in the Scripture, the, the fact that we try to be subject to God and to live in obedience to Him is a light in the darkness against their sin. They don't want it because the very fact that we live according to the light brings judgment and exposure to their sin. We also expose it by, being faith, by faithfully and graciously calling out sin. We have to point to sin in the lives of the unbelieving world, either in general or specifically. We don't do it out of cruelty or hatred. We do it because we're, we're warning someone to escape the wrath of God. Imagine a child standing on a train track and a train speeding towards them. We're screaming at the top of our lungs to get them out of the way. That's what we're doing with the unbelieving world. We're calling them to repentance out of love because we have, by God's grace, escaped the wrath to come. We want them, by God's grace, to escape the wrath that comes. We call the sons of disobedience to repentance. 12 and 13 says, For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes anything. It becomes visible, excuse me. For anything that becomes visible is light. See, they have these shameful things that they do in secret, and as long as the darkness covers it, they can continue to do these things, and they know they're wrong. They know they're wrong. But when we call out sin, when we live righteously, when we seek to be obedient to God, we become a light that exposes their sin when we proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sin. See, there is no good news if you don't understand the bad news. We can't call sinners to repentance. We can't tell them about Jesus Christ and the gospel. They can't make sense of those things if they don't know there is a danger in which they're in. We have to tell them about the dangers and the wrath of God of sin, of their status as sons of disobedience, if the gospel is to make sense as being good news. And then Paul takes this moment and kind of builds on this subject. And he, he says, therefore it says, this is in verse 14, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. There's been some ink spilt trying to figure out where he's quoting this from. It may be a, a paraphrase of Isaiah 60, verse 1, where it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has been upon you. Whatever it is, whether it's a, a paraphrase or an ancient hymn or something spoke among the people of the early church, Paul is saying to them, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. J.C. Riles has a, a little pamphlet he's writ, he wrote on this, on this verse called, Are You Asleep? And in it, he repeatedly gives warning to those who are asleep in their sin. He's speaking to those in the church, sitting in the, in the pews, to, to awake them. And he says this, and he's talking about people who are on the rolls of a church. He says, think, think not to say you are a member of Christ's church 
and therefore feel no doubt you're as good a Christian as others, I answer, this will only make your case worse if you have nothing else to plead. You may be written down and registered among God's people. You may be reckoned in the number of the saints. You may sit for years under the sound of the gospel. You may use holy forms and even come to the Lord's table at regular seasons. And still, with all this, unless sin be hateful and Christ precious and your heart a temple of the Holy Ghost, you will prove in the end no better than a lost soul. A holy calling will never save an unholy man. Reader, awake, awake. He's reminding us that we can sit in the pews all our lives. We can have Christian parents. We can hear the gospel preached every week. But unless Christ has saved us from our sins, we are no better than the sons of disobedience. We are a son of disobedience. He's calling us to look at the tenor of our life, to look at the nature of our heart, our desires to see who we are, and to recognize whether Christ has redeemed us or not. It's never too late to come to Christ. Don't let pride or self-righteousness or self-desires be obstacles to your repentance. And turning to Christ is the only salvation from your sin. Most of you know, or many of you know, I lost my mother in 2021. And she was in the hospital for another condition when I found out she had heart problems. And I found out she hadn't told us she had heart problems. Her doctor had told her she had a heart problem and she needed a pacemaker. She didn't tell my dad. She didn't tell me. We didn't find out until she was in the hospital. She had to recover from an infection, and then they were going to, they asked my permission because I was her medical power of attorney, and she was, uh, because of this infection, not able to make decisions if we could do the pacemaker, and I said yes. And so she spent some time in a recovery center to recover from the infection. And then in the middle of the night, she died from a heart attack. It just stopped. And then I had to tell my dad, who had no idea that my mom had a heart condition. And he blamed the doctors. He blamed himself, mostly. And I told him, Mom died because Mom didn't tell us she had a heart condition. We have to take seriously the warnings that we're given in this life, and the most serious warning that we have to consider is this one. That there will come a time when we stand before the judge of all the universe, and we will either approach him as our Father in Christ Jesus and know that we are saved and redeemed and secure in his arms, or we'll approach him as a son of disobedience, as a judge. This is good news for the Christian, because our salvation is not secured in us, it's in Christ alone. But for those who do not know him, it is a terrifying thought. All right, so having answered what it means to walk as children of the light, let's just look briefly at how we imitate God in walking carefully in wisdom. It's in the last few verses, 15 through 21. And we, we walk carefully in wisdom in our use of time and understanding the Lord's will and in being filled with the Spirit. Paul's words here really echo back to Old Testament wisdom. He talks about the best use of time in verse 16. He says, making the best use of time because the days are evil. We are to walk, not as unwise as, as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. He's saying, look, 
This world is full of wickedness and strife and evil. We need to make the best use of our time now to live for the kingdom of God because the days are evil. We need to respond in obedience because the days are evil. We need to use what time we have for the kingdom of God. It is said that towards the end of John Calvin's life, he was often ill and sick, and at one point he was in bed, and his friends were urging him to rest because he was literally working himself to death. And he said to them, what? Would you have the Lord find me idle when he comes? Now, we're not John Calvin, but each of us has been called to something in our lives. We each have unique vocations, that is, roles in our lives and people in our lives, and God has made each of us important in the work and ministry of the gospel. We're each part of the body, and we each have callings, people that we influence and talk to, people that we pray for. Never cease to pour out prayers for those unbelievers who God's put in your life. Never cease to, 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 to fail to pray for all those who need Christ and Him crucified. Never become hard and bitter against the world in a way that keeps you from praying for their salvation. Share with those who will let you share. Pray for those who will let you pray. Pour out your life for the gospel. I've, I've been realizing more and more lately that I don't work too hard. I just work too hard for the unimportant things. It's not that I'm too busy. I'm too busy with unimportant things. Just pray to God that you lay your hands and put your hands to whatever is he deems important in this life, and he will show you. We're to discern or understand what the will of the Lord is. He says, therefore, do not be foolish, verse 17, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Boyce says, this is probably not him telling us to simply study the word of God. It's certainly, it's that. But he's saying to look at the world around us according to the word of God and understand what God is doing now and here. It's always about Christ and him crucified for our sins, but there are unique points in history, in our lives, in the places we are. What is God telling you to do here and now? Who's he telling you to share the gospel with? Who's he placed in your life? What is going on? And follow that path. It will always be a faithful response to the word of God. And this one is interesting. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. He contrasts being drunk with being filled with the Spirit. And I think the image here is of a, of a party where people are drunken and acting foolish and ridiculous and doing all kinds of just stupid things, frankly, because of the alcohol, bringing out their true natures. He says, you're not to be like that. Don't do those things, but be filled with the Spirit. And we have to ask ourselves, how do we fill ourselves with the Spirit? So it's not some kind of weird Pentecostal thing, right? This is God saying, drink deep of what he's already given us. He's given us his Spirit. Don't choose the wickedness and evil of this world. Don't do the foolish things in this world. Drink deep of Christ and him crucified. That's what the Spirit points us to is Christ. Focus on Christ. Set your minds on Christ. He calls us to sing. He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Much ink has been spilt on these categories of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I won't spend a lot of time there simply to say he's calling us into worship. And he points to how we're addressing one another. Have you ever noticed that in worship as everybody's singing? You're hearing the words of Christ echoing your ears from your brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's encouraging. 
On that last hymn, I got so excited, I started ahead of where I should have been on the verse. And it was embarrassing and encouraging at the same time because I was like, I'm excited about what I'm hearing. We love the gospel. It's the tenor of our lives. Worship is a beautiful thing that God has given us that we might come to his house and worship with, his, with our brothers and sisters to our Father and be reminded of the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, thankfulness. Giving thanks always. That's to be the tenor of our lives. It doesn't mean we don't face sorrow or suffering or pain or loss. We do. There are more moments of grief in life than there are moments of happiness. But every moment is to be marked by the joy we have in the Lord. And that there will be a time when all of this comes to an end and every tear will be dried. And we will stand before our God without our sin and perfect obedience. This last verse on submission, I'm just going to make this comment because really this is a transition to the next few sections on submission. Specific examples that Paul will give. But it's enough to say here that our lives of walking in love and in, um, as children of light and careful in wisdom lead us to submitting to one another. It's the complete opposite. The world tells you to go and get your own. Christ sets the example of living and sacrificially loving others. You could easily take the very first verse that says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and attach this last verse, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's like bookends on the passage. We are to be imitators of God as beloved children, submitting to one another as out of reverence for Christ. When we submit to one another, when we don't look for our own needs all the time, when we don't seek our own interests, but rather we seek the interests of others, we are testifying to the work of Christ in our lives. And that is a, that is a pleasing aroma to our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, make us a pleasing aroma to you. Mark our lives, O Lord, by obedience to you. Remind us that we have a salvation purchased in Christ alone for our sins and encourage us to grateful and faithful obedience to you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.